Well, good morning. Uh, it's good to be here this morning with you to worship. Um, the aspect of the fruit of the Spirit that we're going to be talking about today is faithfulness. Faithfulness is a difficult one because as I was assigned this text uh, through the preaching schedule, I looked at all the other ones that Pastor Michael and Pastor DC were preaching on. They had the easy ones like love, be loving, or be nice, or not nice, but kind. Um, and after, you know, the kindness message that Pastor DC preached, I felt like when he was defining kind, he was looking straight into my soul and saying, this is for you, Paul, you need to be kind. And I'm sure when we talk about gentleness, Pastor Michael will look dead into my heart and he'll be saying, this is about you, Paul, it's, you need to be gentle. And uh, as I was wrestling with this idea of faithfulness, it was difficult to define. And here's how I came to that conclusion. Being in ministry for the past 15 years and having a lot of experience and the privilege of walking with people in the church, especially college and young adults, a lot of the conversations at that stage in life turn to relationships. And when you talk about relationships, what you inevitably turn to is what kind of traits are you looking for in your partner? And it's always fun to do that. Whenever you meet someone new, want to spark up an interesting conversation, you say, what are the top five or six things that you're looking for? And if they're a good Christian, male or female, one of the traits that inevitably comes up is, I want my man, I want my woman to be faithful. And then the question for me is, what does that mean to you? And do we understand what being faithful really is? And a personal pet peeve is that faithfulness always seems to be the 13th thing after he has to have a six-pack, he has to earn six figures, he has to go to the gym, he has to be able to bench press my weight times two, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Or she has to be able to cook and be extremely beautiful or whatever. But faithfulness is inevitably on the list. My question to us today is, do we understand what faithfulness is? The first point today is what faith and faithfulness is. And to answer this, we turn to Hebrews 11. And Hebrews 11.1 1 defines faith, we're going to start there, as the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Faith is placing our hope, our trust, our belief, and our purpose in what is beyond us, namely God as our creator, savior, and king. Faith means to believe in God and placing and keeping our hope and our identity in him, not only when it's good and it's easy, but especially when it's hard. Then what does it mean to be faithful? In the most basic terms that I can put it, to guide and shape our time today, to be, to be faithful is to how we respond to God in faith by actively living to trust and obey him in order that we would grow in godliness and character. Now those are a lot of weird words mishmashed together. Kindergarten level, what faithfulness is, is to become more like God as we trust in God's faithfulness to us. To become more like God in his character now, this can be specific to, but not limited only, to God's presence, his trustworthiness, his reliability, his loyalty and dependability, but to accept in faith that God is faithful himself to us, and then out of his faithfulness to us, to live in obedience to him, to become more like him. And if we continue reading past verse 1 in Hebrews 11, Paul begins to give us a glimpse and stories of fathers and mothers of faith who developed or who not, only, who not only believed in faith, but who displayed what faithfulness is in the lives that they lived. Hebrews 11, 9 through 11 says this about Abram before he became Abraham. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. 
For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. We all think of Abram and later Abraham as this titan and powerful man of faith, but the reality of Abram was that he was just a country bumpkin living in the middle of nowhere, and all of a sudden God chose him and went to Abram and said, leave your comfort, leave your family, leave your entitlement, leave what you are familiar with, and go somewhere out there in this world where I will give you an inheritance. Trust in my faithfulness to be your shield to multiply you, and I will not only give you something beyond what you can imagine, I will make you into a great nation. If my wife says to me, get up from the couch on Monday, where my goal in life is to not leave my armchair, and I will buy you a beautiful all-you-can-eat sushi lunch, I don't trust her, because we're going to go to some salad buffet, and I'm going to have to eat leaves. (laughs) Now imagine what God is saying to Abram. Leave everything that you love. Leave everything you're familiar with. Leave your family. Leave a guaranteed, comfortable life and go not even to Cleveland or a specific location, but to somewhere where the only guarantee I give you is me. I will be faithful to you. What does Abram do? He goes. But in the text, he says, by faith he went to the land of promise. As God gives him this command, this call, he considers, do I trust this guy? Is God faithful? Will he follow through? And is what God offers me in himself greater than the mundane but comfortable existence that I have in this land? By faith he went. Trusting in the faithfulness of God, he responded faithfully in obedience to God. God promises Sarah that he would give her a son despite her old age. Further, God tells Sarah and Abram that through their son, he would establish his people and make them a large and powerful nation as a reflection of God's glory. And how did Sarah respond initially? Sarah laughed at God. She giggled saying, you have no idea what you're talking about. I am not only beyond childbearing years, I am far beyond childbearing years. And we have not been successful in having children yet. Hebrews 11.11. But by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. After she laughed at God, she began to consider and reflect, is God trustworthy? Is he reliable? And can I believe in his character that he will not only give me what he has promised, but that he will do it in a way where his glory would be manifest or made real in my life? And after laughing at God's promise, she said, I believe. And not only will I have faith, but I will obey and persevere and trust and live joyfully until God fulfills his promise in my life. Sarah's faith grounds her in God's faithfulness and she lives to obey and trust. And finally, Hebrews eleven seventeen through 18, God tests Abraham and commands him to offer up his son Isaac. Yeah, God is reliable. He gave Sarah and Abraham a son. They named him Isaac, and he was the most beautiful boy in the world. Much like all the fathers in here who has a son. It's the smartest, most beautiful, most passionate, most delicious, most cute, most intelligent baby of all time. In fact, our church is made up of babies of only who are perfection itself. Asaph walked into the office this morning and screamed bloody murder, and I was just pr- trying to cram and prepare. And even for me, that's my nephew. I love that boy. 
I didn't get annoyed because he's the most precious and beautiful thing in the world. Now, can you imagine this? God fulfills his covenant to Abraham and Sarah. He provides dusty old Sarah with a child in her womb. And as, as they're living lives, one day God comes to Abraham and says, sacrifice your son in honor to me. Didn't he promise that God would use Isaac to build a great nation, more numerous than the stars in the sky and the sands of the beach? This was a son of great value and preciousness to Abraham and Sarah. Abraham had walked with God faithfully, not only in faith and believing him, but he obeyed. He followed through. It was an active, faithful walk. And here was God saying, sacrifice your son. How does Abraham respond? Hebrews eleven nineteen. He, Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. From which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham looked back and asked himself the question, is God faithful? Is he reliable? Will he follow through in continuing to fulfill his promise of I will make you into a great nation and no matter where you go and what you do, if you are faithful to me, I will be faithful to you. And specifically regarding his son Isaac, Abraham trusted that God was all-powerful and sovereign even to the point of bringing his dead sacrificed son back to life. What did Abraham do? He proceeded. And we all know how the story ends, though. God, before Abraham actually followed through with the sacrifice, God stops him and says, it's over. And he provides a sacrificial lamb to offer in sacrifice instead. And literally, or figuratively, Abraham gets his son back from the dead. So what does it mean to be faithful? Faithfulness is how we respond to God in believing in faith by actively living to trust and obey him in order to grow in godly character and godly glory. Faithfulness is to first have, or faithfulness is to first have faith in God as he calls us and then to actively live out our faith in a way that is measurable and practical and obedient to God. Not only when it's easy, but especially when it's hard. At this point, if you're anything like me, you begin to feel a little bit of pressure at the upper, upper portion of your neck where your skull meets your spine because this is what I call perfection performance. Hearing this text and hearing kind of the encouragement of the word, I begin to feel that I have to pray harder. I have to appear more holy. I have to preach better. I have to shine with the natural luminescence of the Holy Spirit. In fact, if you don't see your pastors walking around this campus and they don't physically seem on light fire to you, they're not holy. I'm glad after a year here you know that I'm being sarcastic when I make a joke like that. Because eight months ago you guys would have been like, oh, he's serious. (laughs) Only a year, that's okay. This leads us to the second point. Second point is this, faithfulness is first about God, not about us. There's nothing that you and I can do to have better faith or to be more faithful on our own. Our effort is not in question here. Faithfulness is a response to God's initial and primary expression of grace and redemption. Faithfulness is not what we have to do to earn our salvation in God. It is what we get to do. We are free to approach the throne of heaven in obedience because of what Jesus has done on the cross. 
Now, I know that for Asians especially, if you're non-Asian, God bless you. You are, you are incredibly blessed more than us. Because Asians tend to what? Earn our salvation and earn our worth. My best friend's mother went to dawn prayer for 15 years when we were in middle school and high school. And I just thought she loved Jesus and wanted to wake up at 4.30 in the morning. She was my second mom. So one day after dawn service, I went up to her and said, Mom, you must love you some Jesus. You pray every day at 5 in the morning and you pray so passionately because I can't pray because you're so loud. Do you love Jesus that much? And she said, I mean, yeah. I said, okay, then why do you come at 5 in the morning every day, including Sundays? And she said, I pray every morning that my son and your best friend, Peter, will get into Harvard. (laughs) He didn't go to Harvard. And I wanted to say to her in love at that time, listen, that's my best friend and that's your son. But Peter, for all intents and purposes, is uh, dumb. (laughs) And no amount of prayer will solve dumb. You can't fix stupid. But... But that's our mentality, and I'm glad you're laughing at it, but that's our mentality. Be more faithful. That means I have to serve in more committees. That means we have to do things better and try harder. But faithfulness is first and foremost about God. It's not about us. There's a fascinating story and illustration in Genesis 15 where God and Abram are talking, and God begins this conversation by reminding Abram, remember what I called you to. Go, I will be your God, you will be my people, I will make you into a great nation. If you are faithful to me, I will be faithful to you. And Abram, in Genesis 15, he pushes back a little and saying, when? When will you do this? When will I have Isaac? When will I become king of a great nation? When will people all over the world know my name? When, when, when? Because I don't trust you. I've been walking in the desert for a long time, and don't nobody know my name. God responds as only God can and does. God reminds Abram first, again, of the original covenant that he had given him, the the promise of his faithfulness. And then he commands Abram to go and do something unique. He says, go find a female cow, a female goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. All of them have to be three years old. I don't know how you check that they're three years old, but the Bible says they have to be three years old. So he found a cow, a goat, a ram, a bird, and he asked them, are you three years old? Are you a woman? All right, cool, let's go. And he brings them to the presence of God, and God commands him to slaughter them. And not only does he slaughter the animals, but he cuts each animal in half. And he takes the half of each animal that he cuts in half in blood, other than the birds, because birds are too small, and he puts one half on the left and one half on the right. And he lines them up. It's like a little romantic, twisted wedding aisle. (laughs) What is happening here? See, in the Old Testament context, this was actually a, a known ritual among two parties who entered into a serious covenant or partnership. They would get animals and they would literally together with their hands slaughter them. And so it's time consuming, it's bloody, and it's violent. And they would set aside the carcasses on the left and the right to create an aisle. And what they would do is that they together would hold hands. I don't know if they hold hands, but they would whatever and walk through the aisle of dead, bleeding, dying, split animal bodies. And the illustration or the purpose of this was to say to one another, you and I are entering into a covenant. And if I fail you, may what happened to these animals happen to me. And if you fail me, May what happened to these animals happen to you. 
This is how Charlene and I got married. <laughs> Her father had a shotgun and it was all fun. It's an interesting, weird, but serious scenario. But God is not done here yet. Because as Abram does this and he sets aside the Isle of Animals, God puts Abram to sleep. And then God appears in a jar of fire and a torch that's lit up brilliantly. Now, fire represents not only the presence, but the glory of God. He's saying, I'm not just here, I'm here for real. And I'm here powerfully. And as Abram is lying down by this bloody aisle, the, the, the torch of fire and this jar of fire floats through between the aisle of bloody animals. And what God is symbolizing here is saying, I'm going to do this, and you have nothing to do with it. It is about my righteousness. It is about my power. It is about my calling. It is about my faithfulness to you. My faithfulness will not only get this done, but my faithfulness will spark your faith in me and will grow your faithfulness to be glorious and powerful and like me in character. Brothers and sisters, Church of God, siblings in faith, faithfulness is not about us, it's about God. And whether we are surrendering in obedience to him and trusting in him in active obedience in what we do in every moment, in every day, and in every opportunity. God is showing Abram that he alone is truly faithful and that he alone will make Abraham faithful by his hand. You know what's astounding about this weird, bloody story in Genesis 15? This is the gospel. That God takes our inadequacies, our sins, and our complaining and our brokenness upon himself and the grace and knowledge that we would never be able to pay, live up to, or accomplish faithfulness on our own. But instead of justifiably condemning us to eternal punishment as we so deserve, God took our righteousness and redemption upon himself. And he literally doesn't just promise this in faith. His, he, he makes it into action. The faithfulness of God is revealed in the moment that Jesus becomes flesh as a baby and endures our unfaithfulness and suffers our brokenness to the point of death on the cross. Genesis 15 is a foreshadowing of what Jesus is going to do for us on the cross, that his righteousness and faithfulness would spark within us our righteousness and our faithfulness after him. We are only able to seek faithfulness after God because he is first faithful to us. It is God's faithful redemption that frees and empowers us to respond to grace. You and I are no longer required to be perfect as we were in the Old Testament, but we are called to be faithful. Now, before I get to the third and final point, if you want to learn more about faithful and not perfect, go to sola.network and search be faithful, not perfect. An amazing pastor wrote an article on the subject. His name is Paul Shen. I don't really care if you read it from me, but don't read Pastor DC's articles because we have a click war going on on who gets more clicks. And so help me out, forget DC. He's a better writer, he's more handsome, he has more kids, so this is all I have to hold on to. Third point is this. I thought you guys are laughing, but I'm serious. Don't click on his article. Here's the third and final point for us today about faithfulness, the characteristics of faithfulness in our lives. So understanding that faithfulness is what God does in our lives if we are obedient and surrender to him, what does actual faithfulness practically look like in our lives day to day? First, I'll tell you what faithfulness is not. The opposite of faithfulness is to be an opportunist. 
In other words, it means to be a faithful so-called brother or sister only when it's good. Do you have friends like this? Do you have a husband or wife like this? They're only kind or loving if they want or need something. Do you have children like this? They never listen to you, but when they want to go somewhere or buy something, what do they do? Our family practice to our parents was, otherwise we just wouldn't listen or acknowledge their presence. But the opposite of faithfulness is to be an opportunist or only a faithful brother or sister when it is convenient to you, when it's good for you to do it. You might call it being a fair-weather friend or simply a bad or fake friend, but the opposite of faithfulness is to pick and choose the best opportunities to actually strive to be faithful, to be present, to be trustworthy, to be reliable, to be what God is to us. The very essence of genuine faithfulness is demonstrated to us by Christ and that he gives us his love not when we are worthy and deserving of it, never, but especially when we were not. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died. He didn't promise his love in concept or in mere words. When we were undeserving, he acted out his faithfulness and love by dying on the cross to pay for our sins. It's altogether too easy to make commitments and promises. I promised Charlene the moon and the stars when we got married. Have I delivered? Ask her after service today. No. I've, I've officiated weddings where I've read the personal vows that they want, the couple wanted to do. Don't do personal vows, because one, it takes way too much time, and two, like, it's corny, and we don't want to hear it. <laughs> but one guy gave me his thing, and he was like, we will always watch the movies that you want to watch, and I will never not do the dishes, and I will never make you cry, and I will never allow you to feel sad. And I was looking at him and be like, bro, first of all, <laughs> first of all, this is ridiculous. Because what if I break your legs and you can't stand and do the dishes? Second of all, you can't control someone else's feelings. She's going to be sad, primarily because she's marrying you. Third, there's no way we can follow through on this. There's no way. And yet what's romantically idealized for us is that when we get married, we want to promise the moon and the stars. Charlene has cried in our marriage because of me. I have failed her repeatedly. Not because I messed up on accident, but there are times where I have failed her because I chose myself over her. And just as a side note, I'm learning as a husband, there's no worse feeling in the world that when you walk into a room and your wife looks at you and you look at her in dead eye contact and she begins to tear up because of you. No worse feeling in the world. But the greatest sense of faithfulness is not that we will make someone else happy, but that we will wake up every day to honor God in being a serving husband, in being a faithful wife. The opposite of faithfulness is to pick and choose when you want to be faithful. That's not friendship. That's not marriage. That's not relationship. That's self-idolatry and vanity. The very essence of faithfulness is to be faithful, not only when it is easy, beneficial, or convenient for us, but to be faithful, to be trustworthy, loyal, and reliable, even and maybe especially when it is not easy to be so. This means that among friends, you hold on to one another. Not because you guys all have Instagram-worthy coffee and brunch all the time, but because this is what Christ calls you to and this is what Christ has done for us. 
This means if you are married or dating and on your way to be married, but not yet, so boundaries still, so that's important. This means that if you're married, be faithful, not only when it's easy and she's looking the best or he's smelling the best, but especially when he's not. This morning, I had to leave earlier, and Charlene came out of the room to say bye to me, and she had just woken up, and I remembered faithfulness right away. Why? Have you tried kissing someone that has not showered or brushed their teeth yet? You know how I know that I love her and she loves me? She still gave me a kiss, and I allowed her to. Not only when it's easy, but especially when it's hard. Second, the counterfeit of faithfulness, or the thing that we think is faithful that we do, but is actually not, is to be loving but not truthful, so that you are never willing to confront, challenge, or hold accountable in loving righteousness. Godly faithfulness is not blind, nor does it ignore sin and brokenness. You cannot be so-called faithful to someone blind to sin and brokenness, just as you would not let somebody knowingly jump off the edge of the Grand Canyon. You would stop them. You would say, this is wrong. But a big part of faithfulness is not just walking with them, but walking with them and speaking the truth in love, and being honest, and sharing them. Now, understand this, being truthful in the love and grace of God. And being honest, because our desire is that not only we would grow in faithfulness or godly character or reliability, etc., but that we, in our presence, would edify one another to become more godly by what we say and what we do. Now, here's the awkward question. In your friendships, in your community, do you strive to sharpen one another in the truth and the love of Christ? Or are are you such a loner and loser that you just want someone to go watch a movie with? That you're so insecure that you can't have a meal at a restaurant, and so you're willing to talk about nonsense for hours and hours and not actually get to the heart of the issue. Are we willing to be faithful, to speak the truth in love, and to hear the truth in love, in true godly faithfulness with one another? Finally then, what are some practical ways after godly faithfulness in our lives? There's an author, Jerry Bridges, in his book, A Fruitful Life, and he shares three primary attributes of God's faithfulness that we can know and practice to one another. The first one is absolute honesty grounded in the love of God. God is true and honest in his righteous love. This is a hallmark of faithfulness. God hates lying. God hates lying and calls us to not even deceive in any manner. God is absolutely honest in condemning our sin, but he is also absolutely honest in showing us his grace. It is not one or the other. It must be both. To put our faith in action by living obediently to him, we must have the courage, truth, and love to hold and speak to one another in godly truth according to his word. Second one is this, to be utterly dependable. To be utterly dependable. Daniel in the Bible was neither corrupt or negligent. He was reliable and dependable. And here's what dependable means. People could count on him, and he was on time. He was prepared, and he followed through on what he said he would do. And he considered how his actions and his preparation and his attendance and his on-timeness, etc., would not only affect himself but also affect others. Dependability, in other words, is to put the needs and well-being of somebody else above your own and to show up for them. This is why I harp on being on time for college meetings. This is why I harp on being on time 
for comm group meetings. Now the difference between comm group leaders and college students is that comm group leaders are all older than me and I submit to your age. That's okay. But for college students, they think being 15 minutes late and not even letting you know that I'm gonna be 15 minutes late is okay. It's not, it's disrespectful to me, it's disrespectful to you and it's disrespectful to one another. And then when I say to them, you know what being on time is? If the meeting's at nine, you're there at 8.50 at a minimum. And not only are you there at 8.50, you're ready to go, to discuss, to engage, to encounter. Are we faithfully dependable as a staff, as a church, in our marriage, as children, as coworkers, as employers, as employees? Third and final trait that Jerry Bridges brings up is unswerving loyalty. The faithful person is not only honest and dependable, but also loyal as God is loyal. Loyalty is being faithful and sticking with someone or something through thick and thin. Loyalty is showing up, and not just showing up, but being the positive and edifying presence of God. Proverbs 17, 17 tells us, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. Fairweather friends are not friends. Jonathan and David's relationship is the prime captor of this. Jonathan was set to be the king of Israel. Jonathan had every advantage. Jonathan still was loyal to his friend David over his own self and sacrificed not only death threats from his father and his kingship and the throne that he was worthy of so that God's chosen and anointed one, David, could be king. Loyalty costs. Loyalty is faithful. I think this is the unique thing about faithfulness is that it's not just about the vertical relationship with God, but how God is faithful to us and how we want to respond to be faithful to God is also exhibited in the horizontal relationships we have with one another. We cannot have genuine faith in Christ. We cannot genuinely be faithful to Christ if we are not faithful to each other. They're one and the same and they're connected. Some of us have faith in Christ, but we are not faithful to one another. Now, that's an oxymoron. Some of us have faith in Christ, or think we do, but we profess and praise God in service all the time. But when we walk out these doors, we are not actively, intentionally faithful to one another. That's not faithfulness, nor is that faith. Some of us think that because we show up to church and sing songs and tithe and maybe even serve in some way and send our kids to Sunday school that we have faith and are faithful. But God says, I would rather have obedience than sacrifices. I would rather, however, you show compassion to one another than to pray eloquently. And Jesus, in fact, tells his disciples, it's not about what you say, but how you treat the poor, the naked, the imprisoned, the sick, the alone, the outcast, the stranger. That is how you are faithfully engaging and revealing your relationship with me. The Jewish tradition has this practice called Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is simply just a day of atonement. Once a year on Yom Kippur, they go, they go before God as a community and as individuals, and they say, God, forgive us for all the wrongs we have done against you. And then the idea is that God forgives them. But a little lesser known thing about Yom Kippur is that the day before Yom Kippur, called Erev Yom Kippur, is that they have to go to one another and say, I've been a bad friend. I've been a bad husband. I've been an unfaithful child. I've been a bad wife. And they are supposed to confess their sins and reconcile with one another. 
And the idea behind Rev Yom Kippur is that you cannot ask forgiveness of God until you ask forgiveness of one another. Brothers and sisters, in the same way, we cannot profess our faith in God if we do not strive to be obedient to him and being faithful to one another. It doesn't work that way. You cannot ask forgiveness of God if you do not ask forgiveness of one another. And it's the same situation in 1 Corinthians 11, and this is the last thing I'll talk about. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is talking to the church about the Lord's Supper, and back then the Lord's Supper was actually dinner. They would gather together at someone's house, and they would all bring food, like food food. Now, just like in our church today in America and around the world, there are rich Christians and there are poor Christians, and the rich Christians who didn't have to go to work would get to the house early on the day of the Lord's Supper, and they would bring their own food and wine, and it was good. So imagine if you were rich, you would go to, what's a rich restaurant? McDonald's. And, and, buy out, and buy out the entire restaurant of food. And you would bring wine because it's, you drink this in remembrance of God. And you would get to the house, this, this rich Christian's house, early at, like let's say, 12. Because you have nothing better to do that day when the dinner is at 6. And if you have a lot of food and you have a lot of good wine, what do you do if you have nothing but time? You eat and you drink. If you eat and you drink for six hours, you become gluttonous, which is a sin, and you get drunk, which is a sin. Now 12 becomes 6 o'clock. Everybody else who's poor, who goes to work, who has nothing really, finally comes as a part of the church to the house for the Lord's Supper. And many of the poor Christians not only come late, but they have nothing to eat and nothing to drink. And they get to the house, and the richer Christians are already drunk, taking up the best seat in the house, and they're not getting up and creating room for one another, nor are they sharing their food or their wine. And Paul says to them, can't you eat and drink by yourself at home? Why do you sin in the fellowship of Christ? And there's this, he says a lot of things to them, but the point that I want to get to is this. He says to them, wait for one another. What he's actually saying to them is be faithful to one another. Be loyal, be dependable, be reliable. Put other people's needs in Christ's love to you above yourself. Wait for one another. For if you are not faithful to each other, you are not faithful to Christ, and nor should you take communion or the Lord's Supper in honor of me. Children of God, we are called to be faithful in and after Christ not because we are good, willing, or even able to desire it of our own goodness, but because we are not our own. You and I do not belong to you and I. We have been bought by the blood of Christ on the cross. And the first thing that he reveals to us, not only in, in the cross, but before even becoming human, flesh, dirty, like the, the form of a slave, is that God is faithful. And he calls us to be obedient and to grow in godly character and faithfulness. Faithfulness to God includes faithfulness to one another. So in true, humble, and obedient faith, let us seek to be faithful as Christ is faithful to us. Let's pray together. Holy God, good creator, above all things, one who is faithful to those who are unworthy of it, we praise you and we honor you for your reliability, for your trustworthiness, for your presence that is dependable. And Father, we thank you that in, in your presence in our lives that you are restoring and renewing what is wretched and what is sinful and broken. That you are making all things new by your power and by your sovereignty. But in humility, Father, would you, would you commit our hearts 
to realize that our faith in you must spark a response of joyful faithfulness to one another. And that like Sarah and Abram and Abraham and all the other mothers and fathers of faith, that it is not about our perfection, but how we respond and trust in you and actively live that faith out in obedience and how we reflect your goodness to those around us. Father, help us to be faithful and to desire it in ourselves and to desire it for one another. It's not because it's a good Christian quality or trait, but because it is what you call us to and help us to understand what faithfulness is. Most of all, Father God, help us to realize that it starts and begins with you. We thank you that even in our state right now, as your spirit is moving and convicting, that you are merciful. And we thank you that your truth is always tempered and equally shouting out that your grace is enough. And we trust that. We give you praise and honor for that. That's in your name we pray.